would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. And again, I'm going to read the context in which these Beatitudes are found. And then I'll, look at, I'll, I'll read the Beatitude we're going to look at this morning. Verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We come this morning to the seventh and last of our summer series in the Beatitudes. All these statements that begin with this word blessed, a word that speaks to the happiness, the inwrought sense of good that God's people possess because of God's own blessing to them. And each of these statements focus upon a character of life, of value that God's people possess. Those that have been brought under the kingship and the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are characterized by these very virtues. See, nobody comes to Jesus and bows the knee of allegiance to Him as their Lord and as their King. Nobody stays with Jesus as one they follow as their Lord and their King who does not possess these gracious qualities of life that Jesus himself embodied and that are imparted to God's people by the power of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So all that belong to Christ, all who participate by faith in the blessings of Christ, all, without exception, are poor in spirit, are mourners, are meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness are merciful are pure and finally this virtue of peacemakers all characterize the people of God and only really the people of God these are graces given by the God of heaven through the work of Christ and the work of the indwelling spirit of the living God. These are characteristics of those to whom belongs the kingdom. Those who are comforted and inherit the the earth, the, the promised inheritance. Those who, by God's grace, become full and satisfied. Who are the recipients of mercy and who ultimately do see God by faith and will see God in the presence of the returning Jesus. And these, and these alone, are also rightly to be called the sons of the living God. Now it also needs to be said, and we said it before, and I'll say it for the last time, that these seven virtues, these seven characteristics, are not a jumbled, haphazardly arranged list. They move in a very clear way from things that we feel inwardly in our hearts and in our own inner life to the outward. It moves also from the things that are, I think, mostly passive. You don't go out in the world and uh, and, you are poor in spirit, but it's within. And it's passive. But then actively, we engage in works of mercy. We engage in lives of purity. We engage in making of peace 
among friends and neighbors and others to whom the gospel is to be brought. And so it moves from the inward to the outward, from the passive to the active, and then from the negative to the positive. And then we see that the first three of these things all point towards that middle one of hungering and thirsting. Because these are the things that bring about the hunger and thirst. When we're happy with ourselves, when we're satisfied with ourselves, why seek anything outside of ourselves? We don't think of ourselves as self-sufficient. We also think of ourselves as self-worthy and self-pleasing and self-glorying. The self-life abounds until the self gets knocked out of us. When we come to grips with the reality of our sinfulness, when we come to grips with the reality of who we are before the presence of the living God, I think Isaiah the prophet would have thought pretty well of himself before he encountered in a vision the exalted one, the God enthroned, high and lifted up. He came to the awareness and the presence of the living God, of who he was, and then he cried, Woe is me, woe is me, I'm undone. A man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why did he come about that knowledge? Well, my eyes have seen the king, he says, the Lord of hosts. We have a sense of who God is. We come to have a sense of the reality of our neediness. We come to have a sense of the reality that we're not rich in ourselves. We have nothing to give to God. We have nothing to offer him. We stand in need of all things, and poverty of spirit brings us to live as beggars with our hands out, saying, Lord, fill my, hand, fill, fill my hands with what I need. I look to you. I look to you alone. The matter of mourning sees the world in its fallenness. And we sigh and we cry for the abominations done in the land. We have a sense of the enormity of the evil that surrounds us and of the needs that surrounds us. But we don't get overwhelmed with it all. We don't get bitter in the light of it because we're made meek. And meek is a disposition that brings us not to have self-will in the presence of God or ill-will towards others. And as we come and we see the absence of self-worth or the absence of an overestimation over, over, over of our self-worth, or we don't become captives of our self-obsessions, we don't become self-protective before God and others, um, we begin to see the world in a different way. I mean, to see our neediness in a different way. We come to hunger and thirst for what only God can give. The righteousness that fills us with God's own presence and God's own grace and salvation and then brings us to be merciful and pure and peaceableness. So I think it works really in that way. So that it's a statement of just the reality of what God does in grace when he brings us to the knowledge of Christ and what the fruits of that relationship of knowing Christ will bring. Well, we come this morning to the final beatitude, and I think it's a fitting conclusion to these beatitudes. Because in a sense, we begin with poverty, and now we end in peace. And I mentioned before that peace means different things depending upon what culture you're, you're in. I mean, think of it now, folks. They give out a Nobel Peace Prize in our world today. A guy named Alfred Nobel, who's the inventor of dynamite, believe it or not. Dynamite! Uh, he, I guess, was so regretful of maybe the fact that he's the genius that gave us dynamite. And it has its purposes, it has its uses, but it's also brought great misery to many people in the world when it's misused, was used in the wrong way. And one of the things that in, uh, Alfred Nobel's 
bequest with the money that he's had in abundance, I guess, was they're giving this out year upon year in so many different endeavors. They gave out a peace prize. And we guess some of the people that got that peace prize, Menachem Begin, uh, Yasser Arafat, um, I mean, the, the list is appalling. These are men that were men of destruction and men of war and men of combat. And yet, uh, okay, maybe we have, we've seen maybe the end of our warfare and uh, we have a little bit of regret and so we do something wonderful in the eyes of the world. And they grant, they grant it for all kinds of reasons other than anything that really has to do with the subject of peace at all. And certainly not the peace that God's word speaks about. This God's word speaks about a peace that has as its roots the Hebrew concept of shalom. And that's not some imposed peace, and it's not some hard um, to bear with peace or something that's enforced upon us. It's something that has to do with God and His grace coming and bringing to lives of conflict, lives of misery, bringing the reality of the presence of God's fullness and sufficiency to bestow upon God's people, not just a cessation of wars, but the presence of what happens when... You know, we, we went to Germany back even in the 70s, and I spent a couple of years over there in the military, and there were still areas that were bombed out from the Second World War. Now, biblical peace, the peace that God's speaking about, would mean there's not even the least vestige of a war. There's not the least vestige of the horrid fruits of human sin and conflict and hatred and enmity and combat because it's been overwhelmed by the reality of the healing God, of a restoring God, of a God who comes in abundance of grace and brings wealth where poverty existed, that brings health where sickness existed, who brings just the opposite of what sin has brought into the world. That's God's shalom. It's delighting ourselves in the abundance of peace. And so we begin with poverty and we end with abundance. Now to understand this characteristic of peace, and particularly of peacemaking, it's not again just that we possess peace, but we're agents of peace in bringing peace unto others. We're peacemakers, not peacetakers. Peacemakers. And to see its significance in this list of virtues, I want to first of all begin with, uh, again, something about the words and what they mean, uh, particularly in the Old Testament and the uh, passage in the Old Testament I think some of these ideas come from. And then I want to say something about the winning of the peace. The winning of the peace. We've been through some wars in the Middle East in recent years when uh, it has been said, well, we we won the, the war part of it, but we're not winning the peace. We're not winning the peace. Again, that's sort of an opposed peace when the boots of uh, foreign soldiers are upon your land and the people are not happy about that. Well, there is a winning of the peace that makes everyone who's the possessor of this peace filled with overwhelming joy. And we want to look at how this peace is gained, how this peace is won. And then finally, I want to say something about just how it is that in the midst of a world of continued strife and misery, there is a way that peace can be achieved and a way of peace that is to be lived out by you and I as the people of God. So let's begin. Let's begin with what is peace anyway? What does it mean? Let's begin with, again, the words themselves. Again, the language of peace can be somewhat elusive. 
Uh, talking about personal peace. He can speak about peace among nations. That even is just a policy. It's not really a principle. It's not really a reality. Um, and it's also a peace that some people even possess in the middle of combat. I don't know how many of you saw the movie Patton. But Patton, uh, he was a strange man in a lot of ways. He could walk through a battlefield without a care in the world. His famous quote was, Compared to war, all other forms of human endeavor shrink to insignificance. And then he said, God help me. I do love it so. I look at that and I say, maybe there's a bit of a deranged mind there. It speaks about war of how I love it so. But yet the reality is that professional soldiers often have fought with selfless abandonment for the sake of a principle that they thought greater than themselves. Now for the Greek and Roman world, peace was simply the cessation of the battle, the end of the conflict. The Roman soldiers were no longer looking to put down rebellion, but yet they were there with their swords and their spears to make sure that peace was maintained. But you see, to a Hebrew, you didn't have peace while, again, the vestiges of war were there, while the earth was still scorched um, and devastated by the invading army. It's when the desert becomes a garden. Peace, you've arrived at. When the wilderness becomes a place for habitation and abundance, the meek shall inherit the earth and, and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And so, again, we don't inherit a rubble. We inherit an earth that's healed from the trauma of war and that abounds in fruitfulness and of plenty. But again, I wanted to look with you at what I think is the antecedent or the precedent of such a statement as this. And I did read in your hearing the 34th Psalm, and I want you to turn there with me. Psalm 34. And I want to read the passage that I think is the antecedent, maybe in Jesus' mind, and maybe in other passages, but at least this sentiment seems to inform what it's likely that peacemaking is all about. Psalm 34, beginning, and read, read the 14th verse. We're told to turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is a call that calls us to turn away from pursuing one thing in order to pursue or seek something quite the opposite. And the thing we're called to turn away from is evil. All forms of evil we are to turn from. And we're to follow a completely opposite course, move in a completely opposite direction. It's the Hebrew concept of shuv. We call it repentance. It's turning away. It's making a 180. It's doing an about face. It's moving from moving in one direction to the opposite direction. And the verb that's translated do in the term to do good means to make good, to manufacture good, to produce good. We're to be in the business of good making, or, or tov is the Hebrew word. Producing tov, advancing goodness, rather than evil. Every one of us makes an impact in the world in which we live. We make an impact in our families. If you don't know that, it's probably because your kids and your wife is too afraid to say it to you. <laughs> but you make an impact. Lots of times guys don't even realize the impact we make upon our children and our family. A lot of times not for Tov. A lot of times not for Tov. I was, was amazed that when I, that, uh, 
when I would see my son do things that then I realized, hmm, where did he learn that? <laughs> and I realized he learned it from me. He's a good observer. He saw the way I spoke to mommy. And then he began to speak to mommy in a similar way. What a rebuke when you realize you are making an impact. It's not something you even choose to do. You're making an impact. For, for what? Making evil? Is that the legacy you want to leave? Run on your tombstone, made a lot of trouble. That shouldn't be your goal. That shouldn't be your ambition to leave this world and say, he was a really good troublemaker. He was really good at making evil. You want to be a maker of good. Advance the cause of biblical peace and biblical good and biblical tov. And you see, the following word, see peace and pursue it, is really what we're to do to bring tov into the world, to bring this matter of good into the world. It's sort of, they call it epexegetical. It opens up. What does it mean to be a producer, a maker of what is good? Well, it's to be a pursuer and a seeker of peace. Seek peace and pursue it is a phrase that explains how making good is achieved. How do you make good? Seek peace and pursue it. The words, the verbs that are used translated as searching and pursuing are words that speak about striving after something. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse, I want to say verse 10, is a word that a lot of us know because of its insistence upon the need for holiness. And you, you and I, when we come from the background we've come from, we, we want holiness to be what people know about our God. And we want people also to know that, hey, if you're not holy, you've got to really think if you're a Christian at all. But, because the term says um, something about peace without which no man shall see the Lord. But it's amazing how we run to the matter of holiness, the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And we kind of just glide over that first part. But that first part actually says, Pursue peace and that holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. The main thing to be pursued is peace. Because you see, it's in pursuing peace, you found peace. And it's in having found peace, you found God. You found His grace. You found His salvation. And the result of that is going to be a life that's set apart for Him, which is the basic essence of what holiness entails. But the main thing is not so much the pursuit of the holiness, although that's implied, but the pursuit of the peace and the holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. In fact, it's that holiness that's, that's consistent with peace. Because you see, we're called by God to live in a world that's not yet fully redeemed by any means. It's a world that's filled with disorder, that's been brought about by sin, where there's disruptions of relationships, first of all with God principally, and then with others pervasively. Strife, conflict, hatred, enmities are everywhere you turn. If you don't believe me, go on the internet and spend an afternoon. Go on Facebook. Even among your friends. What are they doing? Look at engage in arguments. Or at least they get easily lured into them. And I'm not exempted from that, folks. It's a nice place to anonymously 
engage in theological battles and disputes and fights. And it may have its place. But you see, we tend to get so angry. We tend to get so bitter. We tend to get so much of that poison of uh, that bile that Hebrews warns us about. Um, I'm losing the expression in my mind. Again, this is, comes with old age, I guess. About uh, that enmity that's, that springs up and defiles many. Um, we're to be not engaging in that type of pursuit. And in fact, Paul's so clear on the point because it's those vices like enmity, like hatred, like strife, like division, that he puts under one single heading. You know what he calls it? The works of the flesh. The works of the flesh. He says, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And the large majority of those vices that Paul defines as the works of the flesh, you know what they have to do with? They have to do with our interpersonal relationships. And our interpersonal relationships are spoiled. They're made poisonous by those very vices. And they turn our homes, which ought to be refuges, into battlefields. They turn relationships in the church that ought to be constructive and uplifting and upbuilding and helpful into that which we almost dread to go to church because people can't look at one another. People can't be civil to one another. You come together for a business meeting and watch out. People are going to fly with their words. Everybody has their opinion. Everybody has their agenda. And the reality is, when Jesus comes with his salvation, with his, with his gospel, it's to eliminate the poison. It's to inject into our lives that which is said to be the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, believe it or not. Joy, peace, long-suffering. These are the things that are the hallmarks of gospel truth, of gospel achievement, of gospel reality, and of gospel... Well, I guess what you say is what Paul says, lives that are in accordance with the gospel. Making peace is making what's good. It's making relationships good. Again, it's not a call to find personal peace, but rather to spread peace, to share peace, to be peacemakers. And even it's true in the psalm itself, because here's a man who speaks of his own cries unto God out of, out of misery, out of his troubles, out of the sense of the danger of living in a fallen world. And he says, I called upon the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried. The Lord heard him, saved him out of all of his troubles. He found in God his great good. He found in God the reality of a God who no longer was at war with him and he was not at war with God. But the God of peace came and brought peace in believing. Joy and peace that characterizes his kingdom. But you see, it's not just enough for us to experience that joy and peace in believing, because then the psalmist goes about to say, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. This is not just personal religion, folks. 
This is not, oh, I got great blessings from God. Let me go off with my Bibles into some mountain and just throw the line and fish all day. And forget about church. Forget about people. Forget about evangelism. Forget about witness to the world. Forget about prayers for anybody but myself. No. Again, the Beatitudes is a death... It delivers a death knell to, to, to the self-life. Calls us to be outward in our engagement with the world as great, and, and to manifest God's grace in the world in the way of bringing peace to others. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us, let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord. He answered me. Delivered me from all my fears. This Christian, well, this believer with the radiance of his own face being enlightened by God now is in a place where he could offer something good. He can pursue good. He can achieve wealth, well-being in, in, not just for himself but for others as well. We're brought out of the mess of the troubles that we knew in a, in a fallen world all the conflicts that we had in a fallen world and now we're confident of one thing. Though I was lost, I have been found. I'm a sinner saved by His grace, and I've known His deliverance. I've known His, his, blessed, his blessings. I've known His fullness and His sufficiency. And so having peace, the great longing is to pursue peace. To strive for peace. The word in Hebrews, it's, it's Hebrews 12, 14. It's the passage I'd alluded to before. That word to pursue peace with all men is actually the word that's used for persecution. I mean, when you have to persecute somebody, you're off of blood, aren't you? You have to suppress that person's voice. You want to get it done. You want to achieve it. You want to accomplish it. There's a zeal that the world has for the persecution of the Christian. There's a zeal the Christian should have in turn for the peace of the world. And it's an interesting thing how Jesus then moves on to say the world will persecute you, but blessed are you when, the, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And he says, in the midst of the reality of persecution, you might just want to write off the world, but you can't do it because you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. So you can't let the world get you bitter. You can't let the world make you grumpy. You can't let the world make you sour. you got to feed upon the riches of the grace and kindness displayed to you in the gospel. And then face the world strong in that grace as those who are the purveyors and the promoters of gospel peace. That final line in Romans 14 and verse 19 with reference to the way in which the church relates, even in the midst of division, differences of opinion and the rest. We're just so prone to judge others. We're just so prone to dismiss others. We're just so prone to say, well, you know, what's the use? Who's he anyway? Who's she anyway? I can go on and find other friends. And You can't do that. They're God's people. So then let us pursue what makes for peace, Paul says, and for mutual upbuilding. We're not given ministries of destruction, but construction. 
But how is a ministry that's ministry of peace and peaceableness and construction? How does that exist in a fallen world? Well, just briefly, I want to say something about the winning of the peace. I want to say something about how this is not something we ourselves achieve on our own, but it's something actually that's been purchased for us. It's something actually that God gives to us as his gift to to be displaying to others. And that's the Isaiah passage. And I mentioned before, it comes in the context of um, the Babylonian captivity, the return from captivity, and how that Babylonian return was going to be like a second exodus. God's going to open up the sea. God's going to bring his people um, through it. God's going to bring them back to Zion. God himself is going to come to Zion where they will dwell with him and he will dwell with them. And the, the picture's given of the fact that this constitutes victory over Babylon. It's not just that Babylon was destroyed by the Persians, which they were. You still have an empire there that's not a Christian empire. It's not a, 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 it's a pagan empire, the Persians. Even Cyrus the Persian that sent Israel back to their land. Uh, they were worshippers of false gods. And yet that's still God's victory. Why is it God's victory? Because it's God dwelling together with his people. God himself returning to Zion and bringing his people to Zion that they would walk before him. And that's good news. That's good news. That's salvation. That's to say to Zion, your God reigns. And that victory that God wins, bringing his people back, that they would dwell with him and he would dwell with them, is a something that's to be announced. There's still captives that haven't come home. There's still people that need to hear. Zion's restored. God's there. Temples getting rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem are being built up again. Let's return. It's good news. And he describes it as that. It's gospel. It's like the messenger coming from the war saying the victory's been won. The victory's been won. And the person that comes and brings the message, that messenger, is said to have beautiful feet. He comes and he brings this message, this good news, this message of happiness that publishes salvation, that says to God, that says to Zion, your God reigns. And they lift up their voice and they sing together with joy the return of the Lord to Zion. God comes back to his city. God comes back to his people and his people come back to God. How does that happen? How does anybody ever get redeemed? How does anybody ever get to the place where we can approach God and God approaches us? Well, it's an interesting thing that this salvation that God is said to bring to Zion is followed by a picture of a righteous servant. A righteous servant who in the words of verse 13 is high and lifted up and exalted. And you know what this high and lifted up and exalted servant does? Is he humbles himself. He humbles himself to a lost and needy world. And he comes and he is marred. He comes and he is made to suffer to the point where it's hardly even a human being that you're looking at any longer but in what he does in being marred and being made to suffer it's for the victory of God over the nations 
is for the salvation of the people of God to be brought back to God and God to be brought to them. He comes to suffer. He comes to die. He comes to be marred. He comes to be disfigured. He comes to bear away our griefs and our sorrows in chapter 53. He comes to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and then to receive the chastisement that makes for peace. The chastisement of peace was upon him. Again, he's the high and lofty one. He could have crushed us. He could have chastened us. He could have pierced us for our own sins. He's the one who took the piercing. He's the one who was crushed. He's the one who was chastised. And peace comes through Him. Ephesians 2 and verse 14, Paul puts it this way. He Himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. He is our peace. And He's made us, and in the context there, it's Jew and Gentile, the people that had the most hostility and reason to fear one another and loathe one another and distrust one another and to run from one another. The Jew viewed the Gentile as a dog and the Gentile viewed the Jew as a mighty peculiar creature. Why would you want to have them in the neighborhood? Eradicate them. There was no love between these people. And yet something has come that's made something new. It's called a new man in Christ Jesus. So that your identity as a Jew is immaterial. Your identity as a Gentile is immaterial. Your nationality is immaterial. The region of the country you're from from is immaterial. Your political party is immaterial. Your race is immaterial. Your identity is in and with the crucified one. The one who was pierced for your sins. He is our peace. He's won the peace for us. And He's brought the peace of God to us. He's implanted peace within us. Not something imposed. It's not, it's not the reign of some tyrant that subjects us unwillingly. But something freely given, something freely received. That's what the Gospel does. That's why it's good news. That's why it brings joy and rejoicing and songs of gladness. Because it comes to make all things new. It comes to make you new. Our relationships new. It comes to make all the difference in the world. That's why peace is such a central thing. That's why it's the culminating blessing here. Because really without peace, nothing good comes from all of our talking about Jesus. All of our talking about Christianity. All of our talking about religion. If we're not demonstrating peace and exuding peace and showing forth peace and seeking the things that make for peace, the world's going to look at us and say, you're just one of the guys. You're just like us. What makes you to differ? That's why it's so appalling to see the church at war with other Christians. Whether it's because of theology, whether it's because of different practices. I guess somebody that's writing me and telling me, well, you know, if you don't, if you, if, if you take the Lord's Supper with leavened bread, man, you're in trouble. Okay, right. What won't we fight over? Why won't we make a point of argument? But you know, we make these things a point of argument because we take something secondary or tertiary or something out in, in Lonely Land and we take it and we bring it right smack dab in the middle and say, this is what's important in Christianity. And I say, nonsense. 
So the people that I've, you know, I've, you, know you try every now and again to say, you know, you shouldn't be so combative. And, you know, you can show people the dozens and of, of verses again and again and again that speak about peace. And you know what? They're going to gravitate to the one verse that says, I came not to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. It's like the Christians that hear God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai and saying he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant of loving kindness and truth, uh, keeping, uh, forgiving iniquity, transgressions and sins. And they say, oh, but wait a minute. You haven't read it all. <laughs> they bring up the one thing. I mean, God says six or seven things about his goodness. Six or seven things about his goodness. And they're going to say, oh, but no eyes clearing the guilty. That's me. And they're going to take no comfort at all from the fact that God's saying again and again and again that judgment is His strange work and mercy is His delight. Now, there's a time and a place to say you got to stand your ground. There's a time and a place to say that it's not peace at all at any price. There's things you got to stand for. There's things you have to affirm. We have to hold truth tenaciously. But we're to hold it in love. We're to hold it with some measure of grace and kindness. We're to hold it not looking to be warriors at every single point of our living. I know the imagery is there. But the point is when the Bible speaks about the Christian war, it says we fight not against flesh and blood. That means people. You don't fight against people. The principles? Okay. Okay. But I'm going to tell you something. People are more important than principles. They are. Now we're to love our principles. And hold to our principles. Regardless of what anybody else does. But in our relationships with other people. We're called to love them. We're called to love them. We're not called first to impose our principles. Take our principles and drive them down our throats. <laughs> Won't work anyway. So, <laughs> Call off the dogs. Call off the passionate endeavors to make everybody a Christian God's in the business of turning hearts, God's in the business of convicting of sin, God's in the business through lives of loving saints to make people to stand up and take notice there's something in this gospel that is indeed powerful, there's something in this gospel that is indeed transforming and that's my final point, the way of peace it's simply it's the way of the cross it's not the way of our wisdom. It's not the way of our riches. It's not in the way of our influence. It's not in the way of our power. It's not in the way of our status in the world. But it's in our relationship to Jesus. In our participation of the blessings of so great a salvation. We've been reconciled by the one who didn't regard his own status as altogether the most crucial thing. He humbled himself. He came not to be served but to serve. He came in selfless love. And as the Savior, we're called upon to follow, to be like, to, to walk the way of life in the way of conformity to the, the, the Jesus who humbled himself to serve others. Paul says about the people of this world, the way of peace they have not known. The way of peace they have not known. With all the agencies in the world that exist for peace, 
all the treaties that nations sign, all the peace conferences that they hold, all the peace organizations, all the planning and publishing of papers, man's heart is still at war with God. Man is still at war with his neighbor. The people of this world do nothing to eradicate the evils of this world. The problem only grows. Sadly, the church that should be the agent for peace in the world doesn't seem to do very much of a better job a lot of times. When we're at war with each other, when we stand in constant pursuit of conflicts, of having our intent up, oh, this is a new Christian, I wonder where we disagree. <laughs> let's, let's talk and find out where we don't agree. Okay, so I want to get, a, I want to get into a fight. No. no. We're really falling short of the testimony that we should be given to the power of the gospel as the gospel of peace. Having on the shoes of readiness of the preparation of the gospel of peace. The world needs the church to be peacemakers, to be pursuers of peace, doers of good in the world. That we'd others to see we're under a different power than that which motivates and activates a fallen world. We need to come alive to the power of a God who saves. And the God who saves to the end that lions metaphorically lie down with lamps. A God who makes us to turn swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks where they no longer learn war anymore. They no longer hurt or destroy in his holy mountain. It's when we're saturated with the gospel. We have something of the fragrance of the Prince of Peace upon us. And we know something of the blessedness of being peacemakers. I think we'll be of great use to the world. And the world will look at them and say, hey, look at them. wonder where they came from. Well, actually, we came from the hand of God, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been made truly the sons of the living God. Because, you see, we're never more like God as his children, as his sons, being imitators of God as beloved children. We're never more like God when we are those who seek the things that make for peace. Let's go from this place in our families, in our church, in our relationships with people at work, in our interactions with people in the neighborhood, in the stores, in all that we all the places we go and all the people that we do let's be ambassadors of the kingdom of God and part of being ambassadors of the kingdom of God is that we bring the gospel of peace with us demonstrated in lives that seek to make peace and that speak forth the reality of a God who offers peace to a world that knows not the way of peace let's be those who have those beautiful feet that publish the news of a God who reconciles and a God who saves and a God who who imparts the peace that passes all understanding that doesn't need a Roman garrison because that itself garrisons our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. May God be pleased to bless his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we know a God who is a God who loves peace, a God who reconciles a rebellious, unworthy wrath-deserving people to yourself. A God who sends your Son to be that great agent of peace in the world who has been crushed that and been chastised that we would know the reality 
of reconciliation. We would know the reality of being at one with God and at one with uh, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. That we would be a people poised to address the world from the vantage point of being those who have known the way of peace and are able to offer the way of peace to all who will see and hear the great realities of what you have done. And so we pray that you would be pleased to bless your word. We pray that you would be pleased to reprove us where we need it, to correct us, to bring us more and more into the ways of righteousness as we walk in the ways of peace. We'd ask these things coming to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.